to Genesis chapter 21 now, the final part of the chapter. Genesis chapter 21, reading from verse 22. Here we see the treaty at Beersheba. And we see the return of a character that we might remember from last week. Last week we heard about uh, Abraham's deception uh, of Abimelech. He was pretending to Abimelech that Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. So if uh, she received any unwanted attentions, then she would be the one who suffered and he would get off scot-free. If Abimelech was to think that she was his wife, perhaps Abimelech might want to get rid of Abraham to free her up for himself. So Abraham not at his best in that uh, passage, but Abimelech's back again, and uh, we're going to read about him again from verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown to you. Abraham said, I swear it. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? He replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba, because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. Well, may the Lord bless his reading to us. We know a lot about the faithfulness of God in hymns that we sing, don't we? It's a favorite theme of the hymn writer. The Bible speaks a great deal about the faithfulness of God as well. Psalm 57 verse 10 says, For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Psalm 57 verse 10, Great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Another psalm, Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So one psalm speaks about the greatness, the size, the immensity of God's love reaching to the skies. The other speaks about the longevity of that love. It reaches throughout all generations. So for us, as imitators of Christ, we are bidden to be, faithfulness is one of the fruit of the Spirit as well. So if we're going to be like God, we're going to demonstrate uh, an aspect of faithfulness in our own personal character as well. We will be faithful people, especially faithful to God, but faithful as well to others. 
We should be little mirrors of the Lord, shouldn't we? That's what the fruit of the Spirit are about, really. They demonstrate the things of God in God's people. And there's a lot in chapter 21 about the faithfulness of God, as we shall see. First of all, we're, well, we're going to look at the, the whole chapter, but we'll look at it in these three parts that naturally divide, three uh, simple, um, straightforward stories that are related to each other and follow on from each other, but there's something to be found in each of the sections. First of all, verses 1 to 7, and we see here in the birth of Isaac that God is indeed faithful to the promises that he makes. God is faithful to his promises. He's just shown that uh, earlier in, uh, well, there we are in, in chapter 19, in, the, in uh, two chapters ago, when he actually saved Lot from the disastrous uh, situation of Sodom. Sodom was a disaster ever before it experienced a disaster. Sodom was a moral disaster and such wretchedness cry, was crying out to the Lord. We're going to destroy this place. The Lord says the outcry to the Lord against its people is so great. He sent us to destroy it. Well, Abraham made a plea for Sodom. He said, well, if there's 50 righteous people living there, do you think you might possibly save it? 45 righteous? Well, 40 righteous. Tell you what, if there's only 30, 20, 10 righteous people there, will you save it? In the end, God said, I will not destroy Sodom if there's 10 righteous people living there. As it turned out, there was one righteous person living there, and that was Sot. Uh, that was Lot, his, uh, his wife. She looked back uh, by the time she got to Zor, the little town that was nearby, she looked back, turned into a pillar of salt. His two daughters were immoral beyond description, uh, influenced no doubt by the ways of Sodom. So that left Lot himself, the righteous man. And faithful to his word, the Lord didn't destroy Lot if there was ten men there. But he, was beyond, he went beyond that and actually saved the one righteous man who did live there. God is faithful to his promises. He, the Lord saved Noah and his family from the flood. Remarkable story how the Lord saved Noah and his family because immediately after the flood, of course, Noah's there in his tent. He's had too much to drink. Not much of an example for the rest of us, but there he is. He's lying in his tent and it says in the scripture he was uncovered in his tent. Ham came in, his son saw him there and made a bit of a joke of the whole thing. And so his son, who disrespected his father, he was one of the ones that the Lord saved from the flood, and the grace of God is shown there once again. He made the promise that he will save Noah and his family, and that's what he did. The Lord had already proven his covenantal-keeping character. But now, today, verse 1 of uh, chapter 21, we see after 25 years of anticipation, here is the Lord covenantally keeping his word yet again after 25 years of waiting for Sarah. In verse 1, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. He'd promised it a long time ago, but he came and he did it. And Abraham isn't forgotten either. In verse 2 we read, this happened at the very time that God had promised him. And you know what our problem is? 
It isn't finding a God who will keep his promises. That was the problem of many pagan people years ago. They used to say, who am I going to pray to now? So they'll offer up a little bit of food to that idol, and they'll say a few words to that little idol, and they're just looking around, trying them all, just hopefully that they'll find one who's actually going to answer and maybe keep some kind of a promise they've imagined that he's made. That's not our issue, trying to find a God who will keep his word. The problem for us is, learning, being familiar with all the hundreds of promises that God has already made, that he'll guarantee that he will keep. Our limitation isn't the one who made the promises, it's our knowledge of what the promises actually are. We're trying to, well, we're not trying to, we're not trying to box in the Lord. We're not trying to manipulate the Lord into doing things that we want him to do. The Lord has actually committed himself in hundreds of ways for our blessing. He's made his promises and they're unbreakable. What we need to do is to get to know what they are. For example, Romans 8, 32. Listen to this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's great, isn't it? The Lord is promising you he will give you all things. Doesn't mean you're going to be healthy, wealthy and wise. Doesn't mean you're never going to be ill again. Doesn't mean you're going to have tons and tons of money. What it means is the Lord will give you absolutely every single thing he wants you to have, that you're going to need to have. You'll never be a needy person before God. You'll never ever cry out to God and say, Lord, I have nothing and you've let me down. The Lord is committing himself to you to give you every single thing that you need. Doesn't cover all the bases of our time wasting, of our money wasting, of our poor treatment of ourselves. But the Lord is saying, I'm going to give you everything that you need so there will be success. There will be victory for you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Well, our light and momentary troubles. I wonder how light and momentary your troubles are. I know there's a few people in the church and uh, I wouldn't really call their troubles light and momentary. You know, it's not what I would call them, but, um, you know, I'm not the Apostle Paul and I'm not inspired of God in the same way that he is. And he is able to say, in a way that I wouldn't dare say, that mine and yours... All of ours, our troubles are light and momentary. You know why there's one thing that we can say they are momentary? Because this life on earth that we live, three score years and ten, what are you going to do? Are you going to live to over 120? Congratulations for you. If you're going to live for over 120, I heard somebody said, I'm going to live forever or die trying. Well, you can live as long as you can, but when you get to the end of that, then reality starts and there's millions and millions and billions and billions of years going on. Now, this 70-odd years here, 120, if you're lucky, years here, that's nothing, is it, compared to what's coming? That's why the Scripture can say, not looking along the timeline of your life, but looking above everything, and there's your life, but look how far the eternity stretches. It just goes on and on and on. And we think it's so big because we're down here, but look, the whole thing's immense. It's like God goes on forever. There's no end. Our light and momentary troubles. Keep things in God's perspective. Then you'll see. 
our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That will happen if we allow our light and momentary troubles to actually bring us to God, to drive us to God. Rather than drive us into depression, rather than to drive us into frustration, to drive us into whatever else, drive us to God, bring those things, those issues to God. We've got to listen as Abraham did. Listen as Abraham did to the promises and the commands. It says that Abraham circumcised Isaac. Isaac was circumcised as God commanded him. As God commanded him, the end of verse 4. Abraham listened to what God said, and he remembered the promises, but he also remembered the commands of God. And he knew that commands of God, promises of God, sometimes they go together. And God is wanting us to do what he wants us to do, and there are promised blessings for that. If we do what the Lord says, in a sense, we'll be laughing. Sarah was, in verse 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. That's a tremendous thing, you know. There's quite a theme, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's a, quite a theme of uh, the coming of Isaac and laughter. Um, first of all, there in, um, in chapter 17, 17, uh, Abraham laughs when the Lord says to him, you're going to have a child in your old age. And, uh, well, if you were, whatever he was, 90-odd, whenever he heard this, and uh, he's hearing that he's going to have a child, I think you'd be laughing. But he was laughing in a good way. He was laughing for joy. I don't know, what's the last time you ever laughed for joy? Do you know anyone called Joy? Why didn't you laugh for her? <laughs> we should laugh for joy sometimes. You know, I think we, we get a little bit too oppressed by the world. We can get a bit cynical. and we, we can forget, actually, what our smile muscles are for. And we can sort of forget that, actually, there are a whole lot of things that go on that are actually quite nice. And... You know, that we don't have to complain about. Well, Abraham, he laughed with joy when he heard about this coming child of his, and he thought this was fantastic. In the next chapter, chapter 18, especially verse 15, we find Sarah laughing, different kind of laugh. She's laughing through mockery, and so the Lord rebukes her for her laughter. She laughs, oh, yeah, right, oh, I'm so old, right, I'm going to have a baby, right, oh. And that's a completely different sort of laughter. Now, if you're going to laugh, laugh in the right way. You will, you will laugh like Abraham. That's a great laugh to have, uh, uh, Abraham's hearty laugh. You can just imagine him there. He's standing there. He's got his stick, his big, long beard, and a great big laugh. Great big laugh that he lets out. This is fantastic. Oh, the Lord's giving me a son. That's tremendous. That's great news. Good news to have. And um, there we are. Here again now, Sarah, she's laughing on the other side of her face. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Can you believe it? The Lord really has come through. I've really got this son. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Whoever would have said that? Sarah, actually, God did. Actually, God did. And you laughed when you heard it the first time. Now you're laughing the other side of your face. Now you're happy. Well, how much better it would have been, Sarah, if you had listened like Abraham who's prepared to act and circumcise his child and himself, when the Lord commanded him to do that, he would do, he would believe, he'd go ahead with the Lord. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Sarah, not quite so righteous. We've got to believe, like Abraham, that he can 
commit himself to his promises and see them through. What we need to do is know what the promises are. Well, Hagar and Ishmael sent away. We've got that now coming up in uh, verse 8 to verse 21. Verse 8 to 21, we find there God is faithful. We've seen God is faithful when he makes a promise. Now we see God is faithful when we can do nothing. God is faithful to his promises, but a lot of what God does to us is for our humility and to boost our faith in him so he will sometimes bring us to the point of helplessness so that we will be trusting his promises even more. Helplessness and Christianity, well, they're very, very close together, you know. It's not like um, we should be standing up proudly with our chests out and saying, what a wonderful thing I have done in uh, contributing to my own, own salvation. Actually, salvation begins in a knowledge of the helplessness of our sinful state, doesn't it? So helplessness, very, very much linked in uh, with our faith. And so the Lord will often bring us back to that state of helplessness so that we're reminded that we have to look to that same one that we looked to in the first place. That's the one we look to to be saved, to be saved from our sins. And now that's the one we need to look to to fulfill those promises that he's made for us. And he is faithful to those promises. I don't know, do you feel locked into something terrible that there's no way out of? Because a lot of people do. Feel locked into something, there's no way out. Do you feel helpless to deal with your issues? There you are and you can see them, they're very real, they're in front of you. And you feel to yourself, well it's all very well having these matters of faith, but I've got something in the real, in the here and now. You know, this faith is real, this faith is here and now. God is here and now. God is right here for you in your helplessness. God is faithful when we can do nothing. This is the time, actually, that we should be looking to the Lord. It's great to sing his praises. I don't know if you noticed that the way that we were singing tonight, very, very much from a, a praising the Lord from a perspective of dependency. We've been praising God as people who are dependent on him rather than free, light-hearted spirits who go about our, uh, our business skipping around all day. No, not tonight. Tonight we're thinking about how we depend on him and we'll worship him uh, even from down here and he's up there. We're going to worship him. We're going to depend upon him. Don't wait until the problem's passed and you're comfortable again. If you can ever imagine being comfortable again, right now, give it to the God of the promise and find out what promises are there for you. This is what is going on in this passage here with Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar, she'd been mocking her mistress. Not a tremendously intelligent thing for a slave to do but uh, it was beyond her powers to resist. She'd had the firstborn son from Abraham. So even if Sarah had a child from Abraham, well, he was only going to be the second one. She's got the first one. She's so full of herself. She's terrible. She's awful. She's a terrible woman, really. And um, it's really a very, very nasty, unpleasant situation. And they're stuck there. And uh, it's not going anywhere. And this would have upset the whole household and if they'd have had other servants, they'd have known that Hagar was really getting above herself. They'd have known that Sarah was upset and if they loved their mistress, they would have really loathed Hagar 
and there was this division going on there. Sarah said, get rid of Hagar, and then verse 10, Abraham realizes that he's got no choice. He's got to do it. Hagar has got to go. But Abraham is very concerned because although Ishmael isn't the child of the promise that he'd been looking for, he's still his son and he wants to look after him. So what can he do? Here he is, trouble at home, and there's nothing he can do, and yet he's got to boot out the slave girl. She's got to go, but what can he do? Abraham couldn't help the boy, and so God promises him that he will. He will. Verse 13, he says, I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. God promised in Abraham's weakness. Hagar goes, she's in the desert, she's going to die of thirst. She couldn't even bear to see her son suffer, but an angel appeared and told her where she could find water. Verse 19, again, Hagar this time couldn't help the boy, but God did. She's so upset she can't even stand to look at her son because she knows that he's going to die. Very, very upsetting. Very, very upsetting. This is tragedy for her. She can't help, but God did. We read towards the end of this passage here, God was with the boy, in verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. I don't think that him being an archer is perhaps a mark of the special providence of God for him. <laughs> but living in the desert, surviving in the desert, is probably a, a good indication. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. There the Lord ensured the safety of the boy as he grew up and ensured that he would prosper as the Lord himself had promised. These were dangerous days for poor people. Not everyone grew up to a ripe old age, but Ishmael stood no chance of dying young. No chance of dying young. Why is that? Because God had said, this is what I'm going to do. Because God was on his side, and we know already that we can always trust God's promises. Trust God's promises, and trust God when you feel least able to look after yourself, when you're feeling weak. I wonder if the parents of Eutychus were there the night that he fell out of the window in Acts chapter 20. What could they do? Paul had been preaching, he'd gone on over midnight, and it just went on and on. He fell asleep, he fell, he died. If his parents were there, they saw this. Well, it looked like a tragedy, but then God came through and the child was raised to life. Paul and Silas in prison were miraculously freed in the middle of the night, but they didn't run away because the jailer needed to get saved too. And it wasn't metal chains on him, it was the chains of sin and selfishness. He needed to be freed from himself, he needed to be born again. And uh, just think of this for a moment. <laughs> Do you think that the Lord staged that whole jailbreak, the Lord staged the whole thing whereby Paul and Silas actually got locked up in the first place? The Lord brought all of this together. Why? Well, a lot of people have read that story over the years. 
but the story that they read was that the man got saved. Maybe the whole thing happened so that that jailer got saved. He had a miserable existence, terrible working in a jail. He's there. If anybody escapes, that's it for the jailer. He really has to be very, very intense, you know, certain that they're going to live. It's a miserable, horrible place, and he's going to keep it miserable and horrible, so everybody's satisfied the prisoners are suffering enough. And this is his house, probably, where he lived. So, nasty times for the jailer. There was no way on earth he was ever going to hear the gospel, no way he was ever going to get saved. He didn't wander around all the time. He was inside looking after his prisoners. And yet here, the Lord brings the gospel in even to a lowly jailer. That's incredible. That is the Lord ministering to the weak, to the helpless. The Lord bringing these things about for his glory's sake. Well, here is Hagar and Ishmael sent away, and God is with the boy. And we go back to Abraham again. Abraham's with his wife Sarah, and now with his son Isaac. And uh, proud dad that he must have been. And we see this man come back to him, Abimelech. We've heard about him from the previous chapter, and Abimelech's talking to him, and he's looking to uh, form a covenant covenant, uh, with Abraham, a firm agreement with him. And uh, he started by recognizing that God was with Abraham. And this is a good policy, you know, for you and I. This is the last thing that uh, we're going to be looking at, really. Remember God in all that you do, do. See, the Lord is faithful in his promises, and the Lord is faithful when we can't do anything. But when you can do something, when you do do what you do, and you remember God, you remember God in that, as Abimelech did. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. That's a good entry line. (laughs) That's a good starting place. God is with you. And he should have known that from... uh, uh, as a response from last week's story of, uh, of how the Lord spoke to him and warned him about what was going on there. God showed him uh, the truth. Anyway, Abimelech appears before Abraham. He has Phicol, his military commander with him, and uh, he's looking to make this covenant. Now, previously, in uh, chapter 15, verse 13, Abraham had been told something that uh, we think maybe Abimelech didn't know about. So, chapter 15, verse 13 says... Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards you will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached full measure. So what he's being told is that Abraham's descendants in 400 years' time will actually come back to the Promised Land and then it's going to be theirs. (laughs) He's had to wait 25 years for a child. He thought that was a long while. Now, 400 years he's got to wait till he actually inherits the Promised Land. He's not going to see it. He's not going to manage 400 years, but it's going to happen. Now, Abimelech is very concerned because here's Abraham who's amassing wealth left, right and centre. And he sees Abraham has got God on his side, Abraham, God on his side, getting loads of stuff. What's going to happen here? Perhaps Abraham is going to overrun me, where I'm living, Gerar. Maybe he's going to take this. Maybe he's going to take the whole of this so-called promised land. So he wants this uh, covenant to, to guarantee the future safety of his descendants. 
But Abraham knew that this was going to be way off in the distance and it wouldn't be a difficult matter for him. He could trust it all to be worked out to the Lord. Uh, so he knows it's 400 years away. So Abraham isn't going to lose anything by promising Abimelech that he'll be safe with Abimelech. But before Abraham entered into this covenant, he was thinking about the here and now as well. A very, very deeply practical man, this Abraham. You might have missed just how clever he was as he was talking here. Abraham says to Abimelech that there's been a well at Beersheba and he's complaining to Abimelech that he's had it stolen from him. It's my well, we dug the well, your people came along, they stole that well. A well was ever so important in, the, in that kind of an area, uh, producing life-giving water, and uh, really you, you couldn't buy that, you know, this is, this is more than, than money. Really you've got to have the water to survive, to feed your animals, to water your crops, everything else. So water, very, very important. Abraham says to Abimelech, you've ripped me off. You've stolen my well. What does Abimelech say? Because Abimelech's not daft. Um, Abimelech says in verse 26, I don't know who's done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. <laughs> what are you going to do about that then? <laughs> oh, that's my well. That's my well. Abimelech says, no, I don't know anything about that. No, I mean, that looks like... Hmm, I think it's got my well on. See, it's got A written on the side. Must be mine. Abimelech, Abraham, think about that. Uh, anyway, so he says, it's my well, it's my well. We didn't steal it from you. Abraham here shows just how clever he is. So Abraham, in verse 27, brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech. Two men made a treaty. Here's this covenant. We're going to make this covenant. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart? Well, he says in verse 30, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. <gasps> ah, that's clever, that is, that's clever. Okay, here's my gift to you, all these sheep and goats and everything else. I'm going to give all these to you, especially these seven. Oh, that's very, very gracious. You know, all Eastern people would be ever so overly polite. Very, very gracious of you to give me all these different things. Oh, what lovely creatures these are. These seven, that's very kind of you to give them to me, these seven. Abraham says, well, you know, those seven, they're a special thing. They're a witness that you actually recognize that that is my well after all. What's Abimelech going to do, turn him down? Effectively, Abraham was saying, the price of this treaty is that well. Give me the well, you can have the treaty. I won't overrun you and kill you and take over the whole promised land, which I won't get for 400 years. I won't do that. <laughs> I won't do that. And here's seven lambs and I get to keep the well. And Abimelech agrees. He's a clever guy. Abraham, he's worked it out. He knows what he's doing. And the place is called Beersheba. Beersheba can mean well of seven or well of the oath. The two men swore an oath there. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree, we read in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord. He'd done what he'd done, and he was clever to do it. And, well, you know, it's wonderful, really, the, the, the gifts that the Lord has given different people and the things that they can do. And uh, you, know, you could say that about people who are here today. You could say that, just, just walk down the street, really. The different people that you're going to meet, they're all going to be different, and they've all got different things that they can do. Abraham's got a gift here for negotiation. And here he calls on the name of the Lord, having done his clever thing. 
having fulfilled the uh, potential of his gift. He says, yes, and in God's name. It says there, uh, he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. The eternal God, that's, you know, another way of saying that. Another way, what that means is, if he's the eternal God, that means he's the faithful God. He's the eternal God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Abraham does us a great favor here by giving us the example of calling on the Lord when he does those things that he's good at doing. When he shows his wisdom, his cleverness, his subtlety, still he does it all in the name of the Lord. When he can't do anything, when he's totally washed out, he's useless, he can't help his son, he looks to the Lord and the Lord is faithful to his promises. When he does clever things, there is the Lord set before his eyes. Because Abraham is a believer and he's a truster in God whether he feels strong or not. Because God is the same however he feels. Let me ask you, I don't know when this happened for you, the last time you bought a TV. Last time you bought a TV, when you took it home, did you read all of the details about the guarantee? All right. Let me say again, when you bought the TV, you brought it home, did you read all of the details of the guarantee, the copy that was in English? Did you read the English copy? You didn't even bother with that, did you? Mm, you didn't, did you? About your cooker, did you read the, the details of the guarantee of the cooker? You spend hundreds of pounds on a new cooker and you don't read the guarantee? <gasps> Just the same as the rest of us then. <laughs> Nobody reads the guarantees, do they? I feel sure that we should, but we don't seem to, do we? <laughs> now, that's either going to be because you'll think that it will conk out two weeks after the expiry date of the guarantee and it's not really worth writing, or maybe you'll think that they won't keep the terms of that guarantee, so you're not going to bother, or maybe you're just not prepared to think about tomorrow. Let's not play that non-reading game with the Lord. Let's not think about the terms of his guarantees for us. What do we say? Why don't we read them? Because we think they're going to conk out when we reach the, the boundaries of the guarantee. Don't ever think that about God, that he'll just stop caring about us. Because there's so many hundreds of promises, when one runs out, don't worry, there'll be another one. There's lots of promises for the Lord for us. And you keep on, you keep on with the, uh, the blessings and the promises of the Lord. Um, don't think that uh, tomorrow doesn't matter. It matters because sometimes, you know, we do get in a hole and, and we're going to need the Lord when it's tough as well as when it's easy. We've got to know God's promises because God's promises are not political. How many promises have you heard? And you think immediately you've heard them. He's saying that because he wants something. He's saying that because he's after my support. He's saying that because he's got some ulterior motive. God's promises without any ulterior motive. He's saying this because he loves us. Isn't that tremendous? God's promises, yea and amen, and also filled with love. God's promises. doesn't matter if you're helpless or if you're able and skillful. Look to the Lord and he's going to provide for you. Not a way out, necessarily, but he will give you a way through which sometimes is more useful. The Lord will give you that way through that. Trust him, because great is indeed his faithfulness. We're going to sing an abundantly relevant song to finish with, yeah? Standing on the Promises.